Well, good morning. If you will, open your copy of the Word of God with me to the second chapter of Acts. We will continue studying what the early church gave itself to continually, what it devoted itself to. So let me read Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and then we will press on. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Please pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider your word which you wrote, the word which you inspired through the Holy Spirit carrying on faithful and holy men, and as we would give our attention to it and to the lessons it has for us, help us and help me to teach it, to know it, that we would be changed by it uh, as you would not have your word returned to you void. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Last week we talked about this first item Perhaps that's a good word for it, which they continually devoted themselves to. And we considered it that it is the apostles' teaching, which we really discovered or reinforced that this is the word of God. So if you remember, as we went through that, what the apostles would have taught would have been what Jesus taught them. It would have been the truth that they knew from the Old Testament scriptures, and it would have been the eyewitness testimony that they had of the facts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and that the Lord Jesus promised to them that the Holy Spirit would come and would bring to their remembrance all things which he taught them. So what we have then in the New Testament, which is the record of the life, teaching, and um, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and then the... um, the explanation of that teaching, the expansion of that teaching from the Lord through his people, the apostles and their close associates. We have then in the New Testament the very word of God. So Old and New Testament together comprise the Holy Scriptures, which is what the church has continued to devote itself to reading, learning, understanding, and applying since the very beginning. So if you are new to the faith and you're wondering what do I do now, Uh, you could do no better than reading, learning, understanding, and applying the Word of God. And that happens in church Uh, and in personal reading and in um, talking about it with other believers. It really is, the Word of God really comprises the, the context by which everything that we do as Christians occurs around. It's the, um, I I was talking to somebody, I likened it to the spine. It's the structure, you know, your skeletal structure in the human body provides the structure that everything else gets to 
hang on and basically have its proper orientation to everything else. And if you didn't have the skeleton, you wouldn't be standing upright. It, would, it wouldn't be possible. And the Word of God, it, it's, it's like it provides that, that everything that happens in the Christian life, in the church, is able to happen because the Word of God is providing the structure. Right? So let's consider the second one here. We'll consider fellowship. So in Acts 2.42, the first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. The second thing is the fellowship. Yours might not say the, might just say fellowship. I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible to update to the New American Standard here. And um, they retained the articles for each of these. So it's the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so these translators were clearly thinking that there's something significant about these items. And if you notice here, the fellowship, this is really explained in verses 43 to 47. And if we look at those verses, I believe that what we can discover is that, so we can discover this, and so this is what I'm, this is my thesis statement. Fellowship in the Christian church is believers sharing life with believers. We'll try to protect that from kind of an emergent idea here in a minute, but it's sharing life with believers. This occurs in three spheres. First, in sharing the same spiritual life. Second, in sharing each other's company. And third, in sharing each material goods to meet the needs of other believers. So it's, it's those three things. So fellowship should not just be thought of as spending 20 minutes with somebody, you know, after church. It is that, but it's not only that, right? So I don't want to depreciate that either, because that is important. <clears throat> so let me give those three one more time. Fellowship in the Christian church is believers sharing life with believers this occurs in three spheres. In sharing the same spiritual life. Second, in sharing each other's company. And third, in believers sharing their material goods so as to meet the needs of fellow believers. So, if we just look at, I'll, I'll jump around a little bit in the New Testament, but if we just look at these following verses here, we see these things taking place. Uh, what happens in verse 43? It says, Fear came upon every soul which probably isn't just restricted to the believers in the church. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So what's the first element we see? It's this, that fellowship in the Christian church is experienced in three spheres. The first sphere is sharing the same spiritual life. Let's notice just this very fundamental truth right from the beginning. Who are the people that are continually devoting themselves to 
these things. There are those who heard Peter's sermon, repented, believed, and subsequently were baptized. I mean, I'm guessing they were baptized very quickly. I don't know if they all marched down to the Jordan and got dunked. I'm not sure. They would have been immersed. Um, pouring, sprinkling hadn't developed in the church yet. So these are Christians. These are believers. They've heard the gospel. They've come to an awareness of their sinfulness. They know that the Lord Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, and they believe in him. And so those who had received this word, this is verse 41, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So they were baptized that day, so they must have marched down to the Jordan. And these people are the ones that devote themselves to the fellowship. In verse 44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So what has to be true first in order for there to be fellowship in the church? The people in the church have to be believers, right? It's, it's, this is so fundamental that it's, it's something we just take for granted. But it is, it's very important. You can't have Christian fellowship with a non-Christian. Right? This is why you've heard some people state, maybe, they, maybe they're overstating the case when they say this, but you've probably heard somebody say, I have more in common with a believer in Africa, in, the, in, the tri- in a tribe in Africa, than I do with my neighbor who's not a believer. You'd say, well, do you really have more in common? The believer in Africa has never been to a football game you know, like there's, well, he's been to a football game, but not the kind of football we talk about in America. So there's, do we really have more in common? You know, he's not westernized like we are. He's not American. But you have the same spiritual life with that brother. And so maybe the state, maybe the that's overstating the case a bit because there is, an, there is cultural similarities and you can be friends with non-believers because you're, you know, working in the same department because you're um, at the same sporting event because you're neighbors and you're engaged in the same community um, activity that's going on or or your children are in the same little league that kind of thing but it's not real fellowship it's there's there's something I'm, I'm sure all of us have probably experienced this at some point where you can be at an event, and there can be unbelievers and believers there. And there's something about the believers that your just heart is knit to when you're talking to them and just spending time with them at that event. That when you're in conversation with the non-believers isn't the same. It's not present. Right? What is that? It's that with the believer you share the same spiritual life. So when we come to church... This is where fellowship really happens because this is where the believers gather who all share in the same spiritual life. There's other verses that speak to this reality uh, and they use the word fellowship here um, in this way. And so 1 Corinthians 1, 9 is just one of these. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to flip there where he says, um, Paul writing 1 verse 9, not 9 verse 1. He says... God is faithful through whom you were called 
into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that same word, and it's the same Greek word, um, that is their fellowship, or the Greek word is koinonia, if that's, that's probably one of the ones you've heard at some point if you, if you're not studying Greek. Um, it seems like agape, you know, ecclesia, there's all these, there's these words that, oh, I know that one, I know that one. Koinonia has probably been one you've heard. Uh, for fellowship, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord, because God called us into salvation, into belief in Jesus Christ, and the way Paul characterizes that here is as fellowship. Um, John does the same thing in his first epistle, where he talks about salvation as being that of fellowship. He says in chapter 1, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. What's that? That's the gospel message. So that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what's he, what is the point he's making? It's this exact point. That we proclaim the gospel to you. As a consequence of you believing, you have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus. So then fellowshipping with us is fellowshipping with God. Because by being saved, you've been brought into fellowship with God. So, believing the gospel message, repenting and believing, brings you into fellowship with the Lord, and so brings you into fellowship with the Lord's people. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Philippians 2, 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit if any affection and compassion. I'm probably not going to, I don't think we should restrict some of those to this category of sharing the same spiritual life only, because um, in those he's, you couldn't say that he's just speaking about only fellowship with the Lord, because even John has made that point in First John, fellowship with the Lord means fellowship with believers, and that occurs in these other spheres as well. So first and foremost, Fellowship in the local church occurs by believers sharing in the same spiritual life. That's fundamental and shouldn't be skipped over. The second one is it's sharing in each other's company. And this is probably where we immediately go when we hear the word fellowship, right? You may have been uh, involved in churches uh, where uh, they will say, after the service, there is going to be a celebration for so-and-so who's just turned this age in the church or has this many years of ministry, and we're going to hold that in the fellowship hall, right? And so there's uh, even in, it's just common across the states for churches to even label rooms that are dedicated to where we get together and share a meal to be labeled the fellowship hall. Why? Because implicit in this idea of fellowship is sharing in each other's company. If you'll notice, I've used the word sharing for each of these, sharing the same spiritual life, sharing each other's company, sharing material goods, because the word koinonia, fellowship, it has the idea of everything being in common. So if you've heard of the kind of Greek that was used, 
um, that the New Testament was written in, it was Koine Greek, common Greek. If you turn that into a feminine noun, you get from Koine to Koinonia. It's common. There's a, there's a, a regular sharing commonality between us. The primary meaning of Koinonia is really, it's partnership, sharing, fellowship. And when you're brought into the church, is there any hierarchy of status amongst believers? There's not. There's differentiation of gifts. There's deferring roles. But there's not a hierarchy of status. There's the Lord Jesus, and there's everybody in the church. Right? You say, well, there's a hierarchy in church government. Yeah, but the pastor is not better than the people. Right? The Catholic Church got that wrong. The Pope is really, he's, you got if he says something, he, listen. Right? But in the church, in the Church of Jesus Christ, which is not the Catholic Church, the, there is no hierarchy of status amongst the people. And Galatians makes this point. I'm just, this is coming off the top of my head right now, so I'm not, I don't have the note written down. But in Galatians, there's that verse where he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, right? Slave nor free. That everyone is equal in Christ. That's talking about your status as one who is saved. If you are saved and I am saved by the Lord Jesus, then we are co-heirs in Christ, equal in standing, full partakers of new covenant promises, expecting the same glory. There may be a, a, a difference in reward that we will get, which is based on our faithfulness to him in this world, but there is not. But everyone who is a believer gets glory. Everyone who is a believer is united to Christ. So we are on equal footing with each other. So we're common. Just bring this back to Koinonia. We're we're equally partakers together of the Lord, which means then we are equally partakers of one another's company. In the local church, we are together fellowshipping in physical proximity to one another. We're in the same room right now. Right? And when 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 I get done, we'll We'll mingle in closer groups as we pass each other, right? And go get a snack or a cup of coffee or something. And conversation will happen. And you'll say, how, how are you doing today? You know, how was your week? You know, how, how is this, this item we've been praying for? Um, how, how are you doing? Tell me about you. And there's a, there's a sharing of life that happens because you're physically together, right? And, in our modern technical age, we have so many tools to help us even in this just midweek. And we, I can't necessarily drive across town to see you right now, but I can give you a phone call and see how you're doing. All right, we can gather on, on a video chat. You know, when, when my family lived in Michigan, regularly we were um, on video calls with family, with friends. Um, my a good friend of mine from L.A. who he um, is a, goes to, he was in seminary with me, works at Grace to You. Um, he, you know, he just called me up the other day and we're fellowshipping on the phone. We're sharing each other's life with each other um, and encouraging one another. So when we are together, we are 
practicing fellowship because we're sharing in each other's company. If you look at verse 44, notice that this word together is used. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And that's probably the next one about material goods being shared. But notice that they're together. And in 46, daily devoting themselves with one accord, so that together then has unity in it. Uh, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So more people were coming into this group, right? And then engaging in the same kinds of things. So what do you see? You see that they're together. This They were associating with one another. Uh, in the kind of broader evangelical world, it's very common to see uh, churches, especially if they're more of a mega church style, if the if they're a secret church kind of philosophy of ministry, you'll see um, tons of people flock to the building and get there right when the service starts. And tons of people flock away from the building right when the service ends. So you say, are those people really associating together? Not really, right? At least I would contend not really. Um, there may be like four minutes as the band is clearing everything off the stage and, and you know the podium is being brought out um, that people are kind of mingling a little bit. But you're not going to have really life being shared together in that kind of a setting. For those churches, they always have to break up into local groups uh, in order to accomplish that um, uh, because they recognize the need. And, and local local groups are not, it's not like it's a deficient version of this. Um, we have to our discipleship groups here, which are doing this um, very uh, practically. <clears throat> but it's not happening as the church is gathering. When you see these people in the New Testament here, in Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2, they're doing all their life together. They're doing all of their corporate worship together. And they're doing this in unity. And it includes breaking bread from house to house. It includes gathering in the temple with one accord. It's just, it's, it's, Spiritual unity that's spilling out into life happening together as a people. Um, maybe we should just pause and, and think about that. The descriptions in Acts, we can't always say, are um, prescriptive. That's usually the, the two terms that, that um, you'll hear scholars put next to each other. With what Acts describes, description, is it also prescribing that that has to happen? And oftentimes that's not the case. Uh, and so here I wouldn't say that when we look at this, what we're, what we're drawing out of this is commands we have to follow. Be together 20 hours of the week. You know, it's like that's, that's not, right? We can't pull that kind of principle out of the text here. But what can we notice is that they're constantly, as much as they're able, together. So is there a challenge to us 
in that? I just ask you to think about that. Is there a challenge in there for me to think about in how I am conducting my life during the week or even on the Lord's Day when I gather with his people at church? Am, am I too much of a check-in, check-out? Do I spend time um, with my fellow believers, um, whether that's on the phone or whether that's um, shooting a quick text, hey, is there, how are you doing? I'm, I'm thinking of you and I want to pray for you. What can I pray for? Um, or is ha, have you maybe slid into thinking that Christianity is arriving at church, it happens there, and then you can pick it up again next week? Uh, and I would just, just put that challenge out there. That's something that we should think about because it clearly, the belief that these people had in the Lord Jesus Christ, the unity they had as the people of God and fellowshiping together, changed their entire lives not just their weekly schedule, right? So there's a good challenge there. What is the third thing that um, we see here is that they were sharing their material goods with each other. And this is right next to all these phrases about being physically together, what do you see in verse 44? And had all things in common. Verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. Now, there's been a number of progressive Christians who have taken this to say, so the ideal of the Christian church is pure communism. You'd say, what in the world? Where do you get that? Well, in case somebody's brought that up to you, we're in Portland. So you're probably going to run into that. Uh, flip over to Acts 5 real quick. I just want to show you how Paul, uh, sorry, how Peter viewed the possessions of believers. I'll just start verse 1. I'll just read the whole story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. So if you just stop right there, you might be tempted to think that that was the sin, that he kept back part of it. He didn't give it all to the church like he should have because it's pure communism is our goal. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold... Did it not remain the churches? What does he say? Your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? In other words, after you sold it and gained the monetary value from it, the cash still belonged to you. Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there's the sin. Lying. Deceit. Right? Not withholding what is properly his, but lying about what he's bringing. He wants the glory that um, Barnabas just received in the previous verses in Acts 4.36. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas 
by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so he um, clearly received some kind of recognition for this fact, and Ananias and Sapphira see it and say, we want some of that glory. And so they do, we want some of that glory, we just don't want the cost of getting it. Uh, so they lie about the amount uh, that they got for the field, and they say, this is everything. This is the whole price of the land. And Peter says, the sin, he indicates at the end of verse 4, is you have not lied to men but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard. Fear of not being holy, fear of the judgment of God, fear of the holiness of God, and the holiness of God, which is to be presently active in the church, in the life of the people in the church, and the sin that was practiced was not failing to give everything he had to the church. It was lying about what he had given. It was lying. It was deceit. It wasn't um, that he didn't meet a certain percentage of his tithe. So when we see in verse, in Acts 2, verse 44 and 45, that they have all things in common, that they're selling their property and possessions and dividing them up with all as anyone might have need, you'll notice that the way Peter, who's kind of, you know, the head man of the church, is he's probably like, he's like the lead pastor. The way he's viewing their property and them selling their things and them bringing the proceeds to the church is that they are doing this of their property, of their things, to meet the needs of their brothers. The church is facilitating that exchange. But the stuff is not being given to the church out of some communistic utopian ideal. So just if somebody were just bring that up because they happen to attend Portland State or something, um, then just be on guard, okay? So if you attend Portland State, I'm not casting dispersions on you. Um, Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. He's talking about sharing your goods. 2 Corinthians 9, 13. Because of your proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. In Hebrews 13, 16, the word sharing is this word for fellowship. And 2 Corinthians 9, 13, the word fellowship is used there for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. What was that fellowship? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is commending them for their giving to the need of the church. In uh, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches 
the richness of their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing, there's that word, in the ministry of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So what's he talking about? He's talking about money gifts, gifts of, 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 of money for the gospel ministry, for the needs of the other saints in the church. And so then when you get into, into chapter 9 and he starts talking about the principles of giving, he says, It is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brothers in order that our, our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, be put to shame in this certainty of ours. So I regarded it necessary to encourage the brothers that they would go on ahead to you, and arrange beforehand your previously promised blessing, so that the same would be ready as a blessing and not as a begrudging obligation. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows the blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the principle here is the same principle we saw in Acts 5, that their stuff belongs to them, and they're being encouraged because they've made a promise that, yes, we want to give, we want to help the church. They're being encouraged to then um, consider what they can give and be ready to give it and to do it cheerfully. Verse 8, God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. So it's serving two purposes. It is meeting the physical needs that the church has, but it is also um, creating an opportunity for the people whose needs are met to praise God for having their needs met in, in a way that they didn't see was possible. Um, I have experienced that in my own life. It's always dangerous to share stories from your own life when you're up here, but here we go. Um, when, when I've been in great need because... You know, my insurance wouldn't cover the cost of Sophia's birth, so I have a great amount of need, and I make that need known to the to the church, and the Lord stirs up his people to help me. And that's just one. Um, I experienced it most recently in um, somehow being materially able to put my stuff in storage in Michigan, where it still is, and come over here and have a place to stay, and have a church to fellowship in. All, the Lord moved his people to create um, a material way for those things to happen. So um, you, 
you abound in thanksgiving to God because of this. And then what does he say in verse 13, which is the verse I quoted initially? Because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. Your fellowship. How was that fellowship felt by the believers who were not in the Corinthian church, but yet experienced fellowship with the Corinthian church? It was through the gift, the material gift that the Corinthians gave and would give um, at the time of his writing here on behalf of those people to help meet their needs. So what do we see uh, as our third one here, that sharing material goods with other believers in need is one way in which fellowship is experienced. So what have we said? Let me just summarize this real quick. We've said that fellowship in the church, as we just look at Acts 2, 42 and following, is believers engaged in the Christian life with other believers, not just in the gathered worship service, but necessarily including that as well, and that there's three spheres in which Christians share their lives with each other. And it is first by having the same spiritual life because they are all fellow believers in Christ. So they partake of the same spirit. They partake of the same um, salvation. They have the same Lord. Secondly, by sharing each other's company, this is most um, obviously seen in the gathered worship service, but also as they're practicing it, in taking their meals together from house to house and breaking bread from house to house. And next week we'll ask the question, is the breaking of bread purely the Lord's Supper or does it include, um, in this context, the uh, idea of a potluck, what they would call the agape meal? Um, so is sharing each other's company. And then thirdly, sharing material goods with believers who are in need. It includes those three spheres. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind all of that. Um, I don't think we should think of it in this way, that unless I'm engaging in each of those, always giving my material goods to to somebody. You know, it's like I got to make sure I buy so-and-so a coffee today so that I can be fellowshipping with him. Um, <clears throat> now, we're not fellowshipping, but... All of us give to the church, and the church gives to the members of the church who are in need. So when you bring your regular, however regular um, you've determined to make it, regular offering to the church, you're fellowshipping with the believers in the church, and you're, you're taking part in the spiritual life of the church. So I encourage you. Even in that, that, that that itself is an act of worship and is an act of fellowship with your fellow believers. So this is where I prepped you last week. Uh, this is where I now say, um, do you have any comments or questions? And I mean both of those. So if there's some insight you have here um, or some helpful application or some helpful 
um, personal experience, please share it and let all of us be benefited from that. And if I need to share something to make it clear, I will. Yes, sir. Um, you may not know the answer to this, but um, we live in a postmodern or beyond postmodern. Um, so this is all we know. Do you have some perspective, kind of a, a jet tour of historical norms in the church relative to this to this notion of fellowship? What what does that look like, right? What 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 are some norms from the past you think about? I don't know. I don't know too much about um, like practices, um, kind of beyond Acts. What we can see in Acts is that there were um, the churches usually began in people's houses, yeah. and um, the, the people who were saved would then meet together in those houses, and uh, their services would include. Um, yes, a lengthy teaching, but also a meal. Yeah. And um, I think always the Lord's Supper. Um, and again, where do you want to go with prescriptive versus descriptive, right? So we, we um, observe the Lord's Supper once a month. It's like, well, should we be doing it every week? Yeah, it's just, well, I, the, we can answer that question later. But um, I think the the principle is that they were always together. And if you just think of technology, the Roman road system was brilliant, but you didn't have everybody always constantly on the move. Um, and so, you know, for us, some of us drive 70 miles an hour for 40 minutes to get here. Um, and some of us do that exact thing from, from the other way. Right? So we're driving together like that. So how do you physically associate with each other when there's that great of a distance. Um, then you take into that the idea of the busyness of a modern life, um, and it just it gets difficult to figure out how are we going to do it. I don't have the answers to that question, which is, I think, kind of where yours tends, but we can say that they were at least together often beyond just observing corporate worship, and um, that the, how do I say it, the context, the commonality they had uh, when they were together often would have been their common faith and the doctrines that they were committed to. Yeah. So I think we could say those things were always the case, but as, terms of, as far as the practicals, yeah. I'm not sure. But if you go through Acts, you can see a little bit of it. Our country, not not too far in the distant past, right? You had, if you travel through the New England states, right? You see churches in the middle of town, right? Right, and yep. you know, in villages and stuff, and people yeah. obviously that that you know made made things different. David Wells talks about that in his book No Place for Truth, where he talks about how if you look at the New England towns when they were being settled and built, you had the church was built in the middle of town, maybe up on a hill. The entire town built around it. And some of the conflicts that they got into was when they wanted to build a meeting hall for, like, civic events and stuff. Yes. Because the church was supposed to be the center of the town. Like, all the life was supposed to operate around the church. Yeah. So if you build this other building, you're moving life out of the church. Uh, and so that was, yeah, in New England, 
Puritanism and stuff. That was one of the difficulties. So, uh, Dylan, did you have something? You stretching? You wanted me to have something. I was. Uh, I guess one thing. So in verse 46, it talks about how they were continuing daily in the temple. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that their fellowship wasn't just like, you know, obviously it, there's that idea of fellowship in the church on Sundays that we kind of have as our modern modern life. But for them, the fellowship was not just in their homes and their other affairs, but it was this idea of having the intent to go worship the Lord in a corporal sense, almost in a daily uh, daily schedule kind of thing, which is really interesting because it's so far removed from the way that we kind of organize our lives. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I do think from the very beginning, the Lord's Day Sunday was a big deal, um, more so than every other day, but that's a very good point. Um, yeah. There's a challenge in there for us. Yeah. Yes. Yes, uh, I think what you're all describing with the uh, so cost-benefit to the technology, right? You bring a really good use case for when technology is a, a brilliant thing to use. You're across the country. There's no physical way to get there. There's also, I would argue, the, um, the negative or, or con side to that, which is uh, to speak towards the historical... Uh, method that the church has always been built around. You, you, it is the center of the community. You build the community around the church. And technology has sort of eroded and degraded that to the point where, again, you have people who are, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, coming from 140 miles apart to meet. That's a great thing. Uh, but I think that sort of speaks to the degradation that uh, this technology has had on our society in general and how churches should actually be everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you think about the density and the population for just one city, you shouldn't be able to go two blocks without hitting a church. If, if that's how it was still being done, if we were all meeting corporately on a regular basis. So I think, I think that's kind of a prescription of a problem that we as a church across the world have, have. Right. And I think that's one of those things that we kind of have to work on. It's the Starbucks model of church planting. Kind of. Every corner. Yeah. I like it. It's good. Is there think somebody else? Chris, did you have something you want to share? Uh, I think during, um, when they were sharing all things, so that was like during the time of the feast, and so people were still <clears throat> pilgrimed all there, and they were all sort of like stuck there going like what do we do now we're we're these you know new people new believers and and they didn't know what um you know where to go like if they went home there was nothing you know there was no spiritual life there other than themselves so Mm -hmm. i think they they were sharing all things so that they could stay together right not you know go back and and hear the word preached and taught that's true too and especially here practically a lot of these people would have I mean, they would have been traveling to Jerusalem just for Pentecost. And so, you know, how would they have been able to stay together unless they were, like, living in each other's homes and that kind of thing? That's true. That's a good point. Is there anything else anybody wants to add or ask before I close it down? Part of it has to do with priorities. Yes. Yeah, part of it has to do with priorities. That's right. Because I think 
activities can be planned if your priorities in the right spot. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and if you're committed to, especially if you think of like Sunday worship, this one does not budge. <laughs> so then, so that uh, the other activities I want to plan have to work around it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. All right, well, let me go ahead and close in prayer. And thank you for all that discussion. That was very good. A good way to close it. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the fellowship we get to just engage in and experience here as your people at Trinity Bible Church. Thank you so much for bringing us into your body, uniting us to yourself and so uniting us to each other. Lord, enable us to, to worship and to live with, uh, as believers committed to you and committed to the truth with one mind, uh, pursuing uh, holiness and purity and uh, the edification of one another. We praise you, Lord. Uh, go before uh, Pastor Will as he would preach this morning in the upcoming service and uh, enable uh, everyone to hear and to um, comprehend and to uh, apply. We pray that your word would not return to you void. In your name, amen. <clears throat>